Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 20th, 2017. Light episode today. Great topic, by the way. Looking forward to this episode. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine being spewed is... Far from biblical. It's like not even close to right handling of God's word. It might be entertaining. It might scratch itching ears. It's chock full of mythology, false doctrine, and devilish ideas, I think is a good way of putting it. Now, today, light episode. Earlier today, I had a fantastic conversation with Todd Wilkin of Issues, etc. It's been a while since we've had him on the program. And we were discussing his uh, latest journal article, the Issues Etc. Journal, and the details on how to get a hold of this uh, journal article uh, will be at the end of this uh, program. Uh, but the uh, the journal article is titled, An Updated Listener's Guide to the Pulpit. Updated Listener's Guide to the Pulpit. And I think Todd does a fine job of like uh, putting his finger on the different maladies that, uh, in fact, uh, pulpits today, including pulpits where the pastors are really attempting to faithfully, rightly handle God's Word. Preaching is an important task, and there's a lot of different ways that it can go off the rails. And so uh, Todd takes these uh, these common maladies on in this journal article, and I thought he did such a fine job. Personally, I'd love to see this thing become a book-length uh, <clears throat> addressing of the topics at hand. But so let's get to it. Without any further ado, here is my conversation recorded earlier today with Todd Wilkin, the host of Issues Etc. Here we go. All right. On the line, I got uh, Todd Wilkin of Issues Etc. It's been a while since I've had you on Fighting for the Faith. Welcome back. 
Well, thank you very much, Chris. It's great to be back. All right. So the latest issue of the Issues Etc. Journal, you have an updated listener's guide to the pulpit, which kind of begs the question, why the need for another article uh, on uh, on how a listener should listen to a, a sermon? Well, it was about a decade ago that I wrote the original essay, A Listener's Guide to the Pulpit. And at the time, there are two things that were kind of uh, missing. I had a blind spot. I think at the time when I wrote the original one, I was focusing almost entirely on what constituted bad preaching in what we've kind of commonly come to call pop American evangelicalism. So I was looking at that, and partly due to uh, that blind spot, I wasn't seeing examples of of bad preaching a little closer to home. Uh-huh. And so I was focusing mostly on how what the average evangelical was hearing from the pulpit and what they thought was great preaching. But actually, if you look at it in terms of what the Bible lays out for us, what ought to be preached and how it ought to be preached was really terrible preaching and in some cases not preaching at all. And uh, so there was that blind spot. There was also, and this is just by way of complete... Uh, confession and disclosure, I think at the time my theology was probably missing something as well, which led to the blind spot. And that is, uh, I think at the time I had been drinking too deeply of kind of the 20th century interpreters of Lutheran theology rather than from the font itself, that is scripture and the confessions. And so I just simply didn't see what was missing and what was making for less than adequate preaching in my own uh, theological house, in my own preaching, and then among my fellow Lutherans. So 10 years on, I have very uh, graciously been granted the gift of some correction in my own theology and very gradually began to see past the blind spot that has existed in my theology for about 20 years of my ministry. Yeah, uh, I often say I wasn't I didn't send anybody to hell, but I, but I did not um, adequately uh, communicate the whole counsel of God whenever I had the opportunity to do so. Do so in Lutheran circles, I say I was uh, my, my Lutheranism was like that artificially flavored maple syrup versus the real thing. Got it. Uh, it was artificial. It was Lutheran flavored. It would pass for Lutheranism. And it was Lutheran insofar as it went, but it wasn't, as I say, sap from the tree. So it was time to go back and do a little correction and a little addition to the original essay. Okay. So this one's going to take a little bit of a closer look at, if you would, uh, kind of in-house within Lutheranism itself to look at maybe different ways in which Lutheran pastors may not be fully bringing the sap. Is that kind of the idea behind the article? Yeah, it's the, it's the original article plus some additions that I think will address some what 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 passes for good preaching but really is bad preaching in some cases not preaching at all uh-huh. in my own theological house at the Lutheran house. But also I should say that the distinction between law and gospel that I'm sure we'll discuss here in a moment has found its way, thankfully, into some uh, parts of pop American evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. They've discovered it. That's good. But it hasn't always been fully understood the way it ought to be understood. And so it's led to similar kinds of 
bad preaching that we find among Lutherans, even among evangelicals, too. Okay, uh, that, I think that's a fair uh, way of putting it. I think that uh, there's a, a growing movement of people within evangelicalism who are hearing voices that have discovered law and gospel, and and like you've noted, that's a good thing. So in the, your, your article, then, it, it begins with a discussion of God's two teachings. So, I mean, just lay out for us the basics of uh, the biblical distinction, not the Lutheran distinction, but the biblical distinction between law and gospel? That's a that's an excellent question, Chris, because this, I think, is the key to understanding not only the, the Bible in its broadest sense. There are two keys to understanding the Bible. The first and foremost, obviously, is that of Christ. If you aren't looking for Jesus and his saving work for sinners in the Bible, you'll miss the point entirely. But beyond that, there's also another key, Kind of a, you know, those doors that have two locks. The deadbolt is Jesus, but there's another lock there. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is understanding that God speaks a language. And I'm not talking here about Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. I'm talking about a, God's language is the language of law and gospel. God speaks in law. That is, he speaks his perfect, good, holy will that in in itself is uh, life-giving. It is a a a word of love to man it is it is uh, good news in and of itself except when it encounters sinners and then what god intends for our good and for our life becomes to us because of our sin death and condemnation and that's the first word, uh, lang- kind of part of god's language the word of law his will the second is gospel, and that is um, this good news that can only come after what God has spoken in terms of his will and his law. That good news that, and this is, here we need to be very specific, it's not God loves you, it's not it's okay, God's merciful and forgives, it's not uh, even God has done everything and you don't have to do anything. The gospel is God's specific word that in his son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, he has accomplished both in terms of Christ's obedience to the law and his, his willingness to suffer what the law requires of sinners, which is namely eternal condemnation and death. God has accomplished in his son, Jesus Christ, the salvation of sinful mankind 100% without man's contribution in any way, that Christ has become for us our substitute before his Father, under the law, at the cross, and has redeemed the world of sinners by his death under that law, answering for our sins, and his life of perfect obedience, which was offered there as sacrifice at at the cross. And in his resurrection, God has vindicated that sacrifice, said, um, price paid, uh, sacrifice accepted. Right on. That's good old Colossians chapter 2 talk there. So, so I mean, it, this seems kind of basic. Um, how hard can this be? Why, how, why are there so many different ways that people mess this up? As I was reading your article, you know what it reminded me of? I was, uh, I was present when Matt Richard, uh, Dr. Matt Richard, uh, presented his uh, lecture on, you know, the different Jesuses, which turned into a book, uh, you know, Will the Real Jesus uh, Please Stand Up? 
And as I was reading your article, I felt like it, 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 this was kind of like the preaching version of that. Will good preaching please stand up? Because there's all these different ways in which things kind of get messed up. And uh, for the average evangelical, you know, what they, they determine a good uh, whether or not a sermon is a good sermon is whether or not kind of emotionally engaged them. Did it take me to the highest heights? Did it make me laugh? Did it make me cry? And do I have a you know a laundry list of things I need to do now in order to make things right with God after the you know and so that I can be all that God wants me to be and achieve my purpose? That's kind of the general gist of what goes on in evangelicalism. Um, but you don't just focus there. So, um, you know, uh, let's kind of start with, you know, how does the average uh, Lutheran determine whether or not they've heard a good sermon? Well, that's, a, that's, that's a good place to start because I think then it applies to everybody. Because Lutheran preaching, is, and I think we ought to, uh, I think we affirm this both being of the Lutheran confession, Lutheran preaching ought to be the gold standard of what, all preaching is. It ought to be that to which all preaching attains. We simply, we're not trying to be, you know, better than all the rest, but we're simply trying to preach as God's Word instructs us to preach and preach what God's Word actually says. I mean, Christ makes it very simple. He says that repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all people. That's what he tells his disciples, I believe, in the Gospel of Luke. Yep. And so that sets the the template it's repentance that is the law and uh and and uh forgiveness of sins which is kind of shorthand for the gospel preached to all nations nothing changes that preaching comes in many different forms and ways you got boring preachers you got exciting preachers you have preachers who excel in rhetoric when you listen to them you can sometimes just marvel at their ability to communicate and the ones that don't communicate so clearly you have to really struggle and work at it but none of those things really make for good or bad preaching good or bad preaching really comes down to whether or not god's word is rightly divided in long gospel that the sinner's sins his specific sin is addressed by the preacher from god's word as the text would dictate and then that that Condemnation of the law is fully and completely answered, again, from the text, with Christ's perfect life, his death, and his resurrection for that specific sinner, for the sinners who's sitting there. In other words, kind of the key here is when I, when I get done hearing this sermon, has the preacher at least told me, I may not believe it, but he, has he told me that all this that Christ has done is for me? not just for somebody, not just for the world, but actually for me. In this sense, we kind of need to see each sermon ultimately as an absolution. It isn't only absolution, mm-hmm. but it ought to absolve the hearer of his sins. It doesn't only do that. Good preaching does a lot of things. But at the very least, it ought to absolve, both condemn and absolve the sinner when the preacher's done. So if uh, somebody listening to a sermon comes away with the the misunderstanding that um that because I'm guilty of this particular sin it's my job now to make things right with God then something has gone wrong in the sermon even if uh, somebody is condemned of you know of their sins um and because Christ hasn't been properly preached the gospel has not been properly preached in that particular sermon yeah, either the preacher stopped too early or he left out the most important part because it is not sufficient that we be shown our sin. 
lots and lots of preaching will either intentionally or unintentionally show the hearer his sin. That's not hard to do. Uh, it's kind of our natural default setting that we that we are tuned in to hear God's law. And if there is anything left of a conscience in in the hearer, that law will prick it. It will it will uh, at least tell him it, whether he wants to believe it or not that he has violated God's will in some uh, fashion or another. Uh, but see, our natural conclusion then, if the preacher doesn't finish his job is to say, well, okay, this is what's wrong with me. What's the solution? If I'm the problem, I must also be the solution. Right. Um, if it's going to be, it's up to me, as Robert Schuller used to say, tragically. And uh, so so the preacher has to, if only for clarity's sake, make it clear that what when the law leaves you condemned, it leaves you not only utterly condemned, it also declares you unable to extricate yourself from your sinful predicament, yep. it leaves you. Uh, it sh- it leaves you in that sense uh, condemned to death um, for the sins of thought, word, and deed that you commit on a daily basis. And then, what the preacher ought to do to finish his job is to say that condemnation, instead of falling on you this day, has fallen on Christ in in His death at the cross, fully and completely. You have been absolved. Your these sins and all your sins are forgiven. What lie what lays before you is not the task of fixing what you broke, or undoing what you did, or doing what you failed to do, to kind of make up for it. What lies before you now is a life where, in Christ's fulfillment of the law, he he now absolves you and removes condemnation from you, and he frees you to now receive again that will of God that is um, that is still there. It's not the gospel doesn't do away with the law. Mm-hmm. Um, now he says, I have done all for you. you n- there is nothing you can nor need do before me and the Father. Um, you are now, you now possess my righteousness. You now possess my innocence, my holiness before the Father. You need not fear God on account of your sins. And and you are now free to live your life, the life, the new life I have now given you, which is my life, um, through God's word and the Holy Spirit. You are now free to give that life away. It does not only does it not belong to you anymore. You don't need it. Mm-hmm. You don't need. You, do you do you suddenly want to please God with your good works? Um, uh, and to and to hear that law anew and say, God, that that law is good. Um, I do want to obey you. Don't spend those things before God on yourself. Go spend them before your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Go use that stuff for your neighbor. God doesn't need it. He doesn't want it. You go serve your neighbor. And I, I think in that sense, does good law gospel preaching give a Christian a lot to do? Yeah, but not for himself. Yeah. But but then again, for his neighbor. Yeah, and I and I think uh, predominantly, kind of twentieth century Lutheranism had a tough time with preaching the good works that then flow from faith and true justification. Um, Absolutely, and I'll I'll say this, you know, kind of by way of confession. I mean, I I come into Lutheranism uh, having been an evangelical, not just an evangelical, but a Nazarene. I, you know, so uh, Wesleyan holiness uh, and and you know, mixed with the uh, Finneite uh, camp 
trail uh, revivalism. It was just a toxic, toxic mix. And, Worst of both worlds. Oh man! I, and I mean, seriously, it it almost you know brought me to atheism. Uh, atheism was looking kind of like a, a legitimate answer to the problem that I found myself in with that type of preaching. And uh, it was it was refreshing to hear that Christ had done it all for me. And uh, coming out of evangelicalism, my first proclivity was to kind of shy away from hearing the law past the condemning part of it. Um, it was like when I would, you know, I would read the front end of Ephesians and just relish in, you know, chapter two and and just, you know, just glory in that. But then you get into chapter five, which starts to, you know, talk about good works. And I'd break out into a cold sweat, you know. <laughs> it's like, what am I supposed to do with this? Because I couldn't hear that without somehow believing that it was undoing the gospel that I heard in chapter 2. Um, and uh, I fear that there are a lot of fellows who've, uh, you know, who, you know, coming, coming out of bad theological systems, Rome or evangelicalism, um, they are uh, skittish um, as, a, as um, you know, kind of a feral cat. Uh, they are skittish when it comes to hearing about the good works that flow from faith because it's difficult to hear that without hearing it back through the lens of uh, legalistic pietism. Well, and, and part of that is that, you know, whenever the law speaks, it and whenever it can find sin in us, it accuses that sin. So the, the, the Lutheran confessions are absolutely right when they say that the law always accuses an, uh, an uh, aged theologian, now aged theologian, just put it to me this way about 30 years ago. He said, as long as the law can find sin in you, it will accuse you. But for the Christian, for the one who has now been received by mercy by Jesus Christ, been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and now hears the word of God, the law, while it still accuses, even when, say, Paul at the end of Romans is is talking about what what the new life in Christ actually looks like. Right. Uh, it still it still will accuse us, but it doesn't only accuse us. The Christian is both uh, the old sinner that he always was, uh, according to God's law, and he's also the new man according to God's, God's gospel at the same time. And that means that the Christian, as one man, we're not two different people. We're one man. Now does hear. God's law in kind of a slightly schizophrenic way, if I could allow that. The accusation is never completely silenced because I'm a sinner and will remain one until Christ redeems this flesh out of the grave. Right on. But I am also I am also uh, a new regenerate man in Christ, and I love that law. I don't love it with a completely unsullied will because my will is I have a split will <laughs> in yeah. that in that respect. But but um, I love it. I want to hear it. I do want to do it. But it never stops accusing me. And I think what what the kind of dilemma you were talking about there, Chris, really the the solution to that is to understand that while the law always accuses, yes, it does. It doesn't only accuse. And for the Christian now, the Christian now has the law as a gift from Jesus, who has fulfilled it. So that even as I, I've, I've heard my, that my sins are forgiven, and then I hear Jesus say, like he did in Romans in uh, John 9 to the woman caught in adultery, now go and sin no more. Was he, trying to, was he trying to take away what he had given her, this gift of complete forgiveness and no accusation? No. 
he he was simply saying, "I'm giving you back the life that you, the life that I have now lived for you. Yeah. Now the will of God is yours again. Now you can go in peace. You can sin no more. Will she sin again? Absolutely, and Jesus knows it. But what he's saying to her is, "I'm, I'm your redeemer. I'm your savior. I I have." I am and have fulfilled that law completely. And now you step forward into a life that's going to be completely different than the one you were living before. You can't say to an unbeliever, sin no more, without it being nothing but condemnation. Right. But Jesus can say to a believer, that is someone who has been, who has been absolved and forgiven by, by Jesus, sin no more. And again, does that mean we're not going to sin? No, but it simply means there's a new life because Christ has fulfilled that law for us. And that fulfillment of the law, just as, you know, just as though, I think we need to be aware that um, Christ's full fulfillment of the law, keeping of the law, avails for the Christian all the time, not just when he's being absolved. It also avails for him when he's being instructed by God's word in good works. So you kind of hear those instructions from Paul. Let brotherly love uh, continue. And I say to myself two things. I say, I'm terrible at brotherly love. (laughs) I'm, I'm awful at it. And I barely get it begun, much less continued. And yet Christ has fulfilled even this command for me. And he gives it back to me as a gift fulfilled, and I can now hear it, and as the Lutheran Confession so carefully say, begin, but only begin. Yeah. Begin to obey it solely, completely, and utterly by the Holy Spirit's power and by no powers in myself whatsoever. It's only because the Holy Spirit, not, you know, look at it this way, Chris, not only does the Holy Spirit create and sustain faith, and if the Holy Spirit withdraws his faith creating and sustaining work, you and I both instantly become pagans and unbelievers. Oh, we're, we're, we're done for. It's, we're we're it's done. Over. The minute he steps away, the same is true of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the Christian to produce good works. He produces it. He creates and sustains us in good works. Were he to withdraw that work of both creating and sustaining good works from us for a second, all good works would cease and there would be nothing in our lives but sin. But the Holy Spirit doesn't stop. He doesn't stop creating and sustaining faith, and he doesn't stop creating and sustaining good works at the same time. I think it, you know, looking at it, looking at it this way, I think it actually throws the Christian in his daily life not into trusting his abilities, but to despairing of his abilities and trusting all the more the, the work of God through his word and Holy Spirit, not only to keep him in the faith, but to produce the life that is that looks like Jesus Christ and looks like the will of God. Yeah, indeed, and and you'll notice that's a pretty robust theology of the Holy Spirit there. Um, so for me, I mean, the the thing that really kind of turned it around for me was just wrestling with the biblical text, where over and again, sin is described as slavery. I mean, it's it's one of the major motifs of all of Scripture, the slavery redemption uh, motif. Uh, you see it in the book of Exodus. It's so clearly spelled out in the New Testament. And over again, having to return to that biblical category that sin, uh, the transgressing of God's will, 
is not freedom. It's ultimately slavery, which then begs the question, well, what does freedom look like? <laughs> you know, And uh, over and again, we are admonished to walk as pe- those who are free. And walking as one who is free is, well, not looking at yourself, but looking at your neighbor and uh, and helping your neighbor for your neighbor's sake because he, your neighbor has a need. I and uh, and offering yourself personally as a living sacrifice, not for the forgiveness of your sins, but for the sake of your neighbor, and uh, that's what freedom is. And it's, and you know, having to really kind of grapple with that is, um, it, let's just say, a humbling experience, shall we yeah, say? I think the, the the individual you that kind of hypothetical individual you're discussing a little earlier, who comes out of evangelicalism, is just gladdened and surprised and so relieved to hear. That Christ has done all, and then gets a little um, what allergic to the law. And look, you can understand why because yep. they've just been pummeled and gummed and gnawed to death by the law in in their former, uh, you know, the the kind of preaching they were hearing before. But they feel a little allergic to the law. Uh, think what I think the remedy to that um, to that condition is to understand that. Because I think a lot of them come to to the gospel again and then say, okay, now I'm completely free. What does that freedom mean? And they wrongly conclude, well, now I'm free to do anything I want. And that kind of denies the fact that we remain sinners because a lot of the things I want to do are slavery. Yeah. I, the old man, wants he wants to get back, you know, on the plantation. He wants to get back out under the whip of the, of the, of the, uh, of the, the slave master, yeah. The slave master. He wants he wants to go back up to the to the to the block where he was sold and put himself up again for slavery to anybody who will buy him. Yeah. That's his perverse, terrible desire. And so Christian freedom is certainly not because a Christian is both a saint and a sinner. It's not freedom to do what you want. It certainly isn't, cannot be freedom to sin because freedom to sin is an oxymoron. Yeah, no, in fact scripture explicitly <laughs> talks about the fact that we are we cannot use the gospel as a license to sin. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's uh, interview with Todd Wilkin on an updated listener's guide to the pulpit. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select.
Good morning, New Song Church. As you know, we are here to worship our wonderful and almighty God. Because our God is bigger than you can imagine and is capable of more than you can imagine. Let's give it up for God. Isn't it so great that our God can do anything? Um, virgins can't give birth. Oh, you're absolutely right. I almost forgot. God most certainly cannot have virgins give birth. But he is certainly almighty. Well, he can't be bodily present in the Lord's Supper either. Yep, I can't believe I almost missed that one. He cannot be bodily present in the Lord's Supper, but he is definitely all-powerful. Yo, Pastor Preacher! Remember, God can't violate our free will neither. That is 100% correct. I am so glad that all y'all are so well versed in your Bibles. We all know that God can't help us unless we ask him to help us. Well, he can't give infants faith through baptism either. Well, that goes without saying. Isn't it great how omnipotent our God is? It's impossible for God to have created the universe in six 24-hour days. Yes, Siri. That don't make a lick of sense no how. People who believe that are just crazy. Hey, people can't rise from the dead, either. That's correct, Mundo. Could you imagine how screwed up our tax system would be if people were rising from the dead all up in here? It'd be ridiculous. But don't forget that our God can do anything. Wait a minute, doesn't Paul say that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that our faith would be in vain? Well, we all know how you can't take scripture literally. Well, how does that work? Does that mean that the Bible can't be trusted? All right, everyone. That right there is what we call a hater. We all know what to do with those types of people. We throw them under the bus. Ushers, take him away. Hey, hey, let me go. Let me. Ah, ah, get your hands off me. I'm, I will have you arrested. I can die. Let's hear for the Almighty God. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. <laughs> and what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, uh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. 
what if um the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. We're back. Warning, uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to pay closer attention to what your pastor is saying when he's preaching. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute, well, an amount that you choose, that you decide. That's right. You get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank that you can choose is Powder Monkey, and that is a commitment of $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us, by the way. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of my conversation recorded earlier today with Todd Wilkin of Issues Etc. as we discuss his article, journal article on an updated uh, listener's guide to the pulpit. Here we go. I think back to, you know, uh, you know, a couple of things that Rosenblatt taught me early on when I was first exposed to Lutheranism. Number one, he said the opposite error of an error is never the truth. And so you, you don't want to end up in the opposite ditch. That's, that's a mess. The opposite ditch of pietism is like, you know, kind of ELCA, uh, you know, antinomianism where it's kind of anything goes. Um, but, you know, I remember going to Rosenblatt and literally asking him because I was really skeptical of this idea that my salvation was totally won by Christ and that his death on the cross availed against all of my sin, you know. So uh, going to him and asking him, it's like, Rosenblatt, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, then, you know, you're saying if, if Jesus has done it all, you're saying I can do whatever I want because I was hearing it as license to sin. And uh, he gave me a kind of a nuanced answer that really kind of forced me to think about some things. He says, well, of course, Chris. He says, now that Christ has set you free from sin, death, and the devil, what do you want to do? And that, see, that's a different question altogether or a different answer altogether than saying you're free to do whatever you want. No, 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 no. Now that you've been set free from sin, death, and the devil, what do you want to do? And I understand the impulse that Dr. Rosenblatt has in giving that answer I think, and insofar as it goes, I think it is actually, uh, insofar as it goes, I think it's it's a good answer, especially to someone in your condition at the time, Yeah. right? Um, which is, are you telling me I, 
I, I can go out and sin again? Are you telling me that I now that grace abounds, I should sin all the more, which he certainly wasn't trying to tell you? I think sometimes uh, people will take a phrase like, you know, now that, now that Christ has forgiven you, what do you want to do? And they'll take it two different ways. Yeah. They'll either, either say, well, I know what I want to do. I'm going to go do it. Or uh, in they'll say, um, well, what do I want to do? And that sadly, that phrase, what do you want to do, can become uh, either a free-for-all or yet another kind of word of law to someone. Well, I, I, I guess I don't want to sin, but I shouldn't want to sin. But I do, there is, you know, there's a desire in me to do evil, too, insofar as I'm a sinner. I would like to rephrase it, if I could. And sure. that is... Um, uh, to kind of put it, throw it back on God and the objectivity rather than what do you want to do. I think it, the weakness of the phrase is that it becomes subjective or uh-huh. can be. Uh-huh. Instead, we need to say, uh, now that Christ has forgiven you, what, and this sounds like terrible law, what does God not only want to do, but what has God promised to do through you? To understand our good works as promises, kind of nascent promises that God has made, he's as you mentioned, Ephesians, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yep. They are promises made not so much to us, but to our neighbor um, through us. Yeah. And to understand that God has promised, what is it he says? It, he, it is both him who both works and wills in you. Um, and I think we need to understand it that way rather than – and then we're back in God's word. Then we're back out of, of what do I want to do. Then we're back in, ah, oh, what does Scripture say that the Christian life will then be like? What does it promise Christians will be? Um, you know, great promises that exist for us at the end of the epistles, we ought to understand them as not only things that we're being instructed in, but that, that these are promises from God. Uh, the promises that are that are the fruit of the gospel mm-hmm. uh, they are or as Paul would say, the fruit of the spirit isn 't it amazing how he deals with that when he talks about when he talks in that epistle he says you know the works of the flesh are obvious, and then he has this list that yeah. no bread blooded American man can read yeah not, without being all. utterly condemned yep uh, i don't, i don 't I don't know about red blooded American women because i 'm not one, but um <laughs> as a red blooded american man that he 's got three at the very beginning yeah. that utterly condemn me yeah and then he says, but the fruit of the spirit is, and then he has a list of these things that are are all good things. And then he says something about, he says this, against such things, there is no law. That is a statement of complete and utter freedom. Yeah. It's like when we say that the Lord's Prayer, God always answers yes to every single petition in the Lord's Prayer. Why? Because he gave us the prayer to pray in which is the promise to hear and answer yes to every single petition. And so in the same way, the fruit of the Spirit has been delivered to us. Notice it's the fruit of the Spirit, not of the Christian. The Spirit yeah. is the one that produces this. The fruit of the Spirit are, are things that the Apostle assures us against which there is no law. We are utterly free to do these things. God has promised you that these things are yours. So that's how I like to uh, 
think about it. I understand where Rosenblatt was coming from, but I under, but that's how I'd like to think about it. Right, right, right. So coming back to your article, then uh, you know, you 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 have a different ways in which you know preaching can you know kind of jump the tracks a, a, a bit. And you start off with a fellow who thinks he's wiser than God. And uh, what exactly does that type of preaching look like? What do you mean by the wiser than God sermon? Well, I think what it we have to start where Paul began where he talks, this is Paul, this isn't just some schmo off the street, this is Paul saying um, to the Corinthians, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, he's not saying that he preaches only the gospel part of God's word, but he's saying what I was determined to know among you is Jesus Christ in his saving work. And that means you are going to hear from me, if nothing else, uh, that you are a sinner in need of this Jesus. And then I will proclaim to you what this Jesus has done for you. And when preachers think that they're wiser than God, I think what I'm talking about here is that um, they, they want to preach something that they think might for the moment or to their audience or in this context or at this time be more important than Christ and him crucified. Mm. These are preachers who know what Paul says, and I think they understand what Paul means, but they get it into their head that while that's important, it's really more important that we talk about this, that, or the other thing on Sunday morning. It's based on a terrible assumption, and that is that the people already know that their sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ or that they don't need to hear it again. And so we can now move on to other things. So, you know, you get, golly, you get preachers. This has led to what was kind of the wave of uh, 1980s through probably the 2000s evangelical preaching, which was preaching got to be practical. Yeah. Got to talk to people about how to be a better father, mother, or financial uh, uh, handler of your money, um, and what I like to say is you're going to hear about marriage, family values, conflict resolution, financial security, and a host of other, as I say, suburban moralisms. Are there anything wrong? Is there anything wrong with any of those things? No. No. <laughs> Most of the preaching that was that 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 came out during that heyday of moralistic, therapeutic deism in evangelicalism was actually true. What the preacher said was true. He just thought he it was more important than the gospel. And Paul is just absolutely clear that to whomever he is speaking, the ultimate goal of his preaching is to communicate Christ and him crucified. Yeah. Now that requires you, if you're going to preach Christ and him crucified, you're going to have to actually preach the law or that's not going to make any sense. So your next category would be the law assumed sermon. Tell us about that kind of sermon. Well, this comes from, and this is especially popular among Lutherans who have bought into this myth that since since the law is man's default position, that is, we are hardwired to be creatures of the law, a really kind of a perverted version of the law that we that in, in ourselves, that man, you know, all, the, all these Americans out there are kind of walking the streets under this cloud of guilt already. Ah, oh, the world's tough. It, you get beat up on in the world. Your boss gives you a bad job evaluation. You won't come home. Your wife doesn't appreciate all you've done all day long to put meat on the table and the kids don't respect you. And, and then the lawnmower breaks down and then, you know, the dishwasher needs fixing. It's a typical country song where life kind of beats you down. 
and they and they come to the conclusion, well, people have had a, enough bad news in their lives. What I need to do is just preach the gospel to them. They already know the law. That, again, is a terrible assumption to yeah, make. Yeah. Uh, to assume the law is to deny the law, just as to assume the gospel is to deny, deny the gospel. So what we don't want from preachers, their impulse is good, and that is to is to preach Christ. But we can't think of every single person who walks into church on Sunday morning as a little Martin Luther, you know, kind of wrapped around the axle of his own conscience because of the guilt of Roman Catholicism. You know, yeah, people I, I rarely find that fellow. I find, you know, the, I find the guy, you know, in, in, <laughs> who's quite comfortable with his sin. He's untroubled by the last week and yeah. how it went with him. In fact, he might be feeling a little, he might be feeling his oats because he had a great week and, you know, the circumstances of life can can often uh, rob us of the word of God, as, as Jesus teaches in that parable of the sower. So we have to be aware as preachers that not everybody walking into church has been beaten down by the law or has heard it already. Some people walk in and, you know, they kind of hate God this morning. Or they walk in and they're not terribly troubled with what they've been up to lately or what they've been thinking or saying. Yep. And that's what God's word is for, is to show us our sins. So we cannot assume the law. Yeah. Now, let, let me ask you this. I, I made a comment at the Issues Etc. conference a couple of years ago when the, the topic came came up. And one of the things that's kind of been the uh, mentally the acts I've been grinding on is that I've noticed that a lot of Lutheran sermons are kind of preached in the abstract. Uh, the, the biblical text is read as part of the liturgy, uh, and then the pastor uh, ascends the pulpit, and it's like he never touches the text again. And it's this, it's, it's this weird phenomenon. And, you know, I made the comment that my job as a pastor is not to preach law or gospel. My job is to actually preach a text, and law and gospel comes up through the text. And, uh, and I, I've noticed there's a, there's a weird move that occurs with some Lutheran pastors, and that is, is this kind of abstract discussion of theology almost disconnected from the text that they've been assigned on, on any given Sunday. And that's, that's like troubling to me because you, you read uh, the Apostles of, of Luther or uh, Johann Gerhardt. These guys are literally stepping through the texts verse by verse, which is not uh, how a lot of Lutheran preaching takes place nowadays. Uh, that's more or less what the Baptist does. It's as if the Lutherans have lost sight of the fact that, go read Luther, man. He'll, he'll just work it out, he'll chunk out the, the assigned text and then preach accordingly. But I don't see that a lot in Lutheran preaching. And I, I know why it happens. It happens because the preacher doesn't tr- trust the text to, to say what he wants to say. So he's got an idea in his head about he, what, he, what he thinks needs to be said. And again, the impulse here is he, he really does want his people to hear long gospel. But the text, he might think the text is a hindrance to that. <laughs> and uh, instead of trusting God's word to actually, if, if you preach what this text says, and you, and, you under, and you lay it out before your people in terms of what God has commanded of us that we have failed to do, and what God has done in Christ, and from the text, what the text says of those things, um, that actually long gospel will get preached. The text is a heck of a lot better at preaching long gospel than any preacher I've ever known. Right. And so I think they're trying to help the text or they're trying to uh, sometimes avoid it because they don't know what to do with it. 
Um, and I think what that what it what it means is you get these vagaries. What else can it be? The text gives a specificity. Yeah. But it, whenever we talk about sin, boy, this is something I'm trying to break myself of as a preacher, and I and I broke my rule this last Sunday. Um, I preached a, a sermon, albeit to an audience that I did not know personally as a pastor. I preached a sermon, and my my gospel is very specific, but my law was pretty generic, Chris. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was pretty vague. Now, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit can't use this, but um, but the when sin becomes an abstraction, just kind of a condition, then the gospel that follows it and answers it often becomes equally abstract. Yeah. So that it, then it be, becomes these things like I write about in the article, God loves you, or don't worry, God forgives you. Or even the one that's popular, I see so popular among kind of the law gospel evangelicals, which is I've actually heard law gospel evangelicals describe the gospel without ever mentioning Jesus. What? <laughs> yeah. Jesus doesn't get mentioned. It's just God has done everything. Um, uh, yeah. What? Can you give me some specifics? What has he done exactly? Yeah. And and so when, when when we get this abstraction of the gospel, Jesus is one of the first things to fall out of the conversation. Yeah. You can't speak the gospel without talking about Jesus. God loves you is not the gospel. God forgives you is not the gospel. Uh, God, uh, that's about as useful as God uh, loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life to tell you, to tell you the truth. Yeah. It's a platitude. Um, Yeah. And while those things might be true in Christ, uh, apart from Christ, they are mere platitudes. So Joel Osteen is a great example because Joel Osteen preaches the God loves you anyway, gospel uh, sermon, which is he will pretty clearly talk about the conditions in our lives that he won't call them sin, but they are sin. Um, and then when he gets around, if he ever does, to talking about any kind of good news, it is inevitably God loves you anyway. Yeah, yeah you fail, you make mistakes, you do all these things, but God loves you anyway. He, it's a gospel that doesn't require Jesus dead on the cross, and therefore it's no gospel at all. Right. And, you know, when, <laughs> when Paul says, if anyone comes to you preaching a gospel other than the one I preach, he's not just talking about you need to be circumcised. Yeah. He's speaking about that specific instance to the Galatians. But when he says any other gospel, there are about a thousand ways to get the gospel wrong. And he's saying none of them will do. Not just you must be circumcised or become a Jew, but all the other ones up to and including Joel Osteen's Don't Worry, God Loves You Anyway. I'm pretty sure Christ's suffering and bleeding for our sins on the cross definitively demonstrates that God doesn't love us anyway. I, you know, this vicarious atonement that Christ was uh, suffering in our place is not a, a God loves you anyway. It's that he's getting what you deserve and you're not getting what you deserve kind of thing, that you know, kind of double imputation thing, but that's a totally other thing. So uh, another example, the gospel afterthought sermon. So this is the opposite of the law assumed, the gospel afterthought sermon. What is that? Oh, that's uh, you could call it gospel af- afterthought or gospel footnote, um, and this is one that I grew up with, which was the preachers spent a lot of time, and they might even be preaching the text in the sense that they were expositing the text, uh-huh. but they never really found a comfortable place for Jesus in their pre- in their preaching. But they knew that he had to be there, so they kind of stuck him in the trunk or put him on a trailer at the end of the 
convoy so that before they would end the sermon, they knew the sermon had to end, the people were looking at their watches, they just kind of toss in, you know, Jesus uh, Jesus died on the cross for you, and that makes all things good with God, and, and go your way and go in peace, um, so that the gospel becomes an afterthought to what they had to say. You've ever, you ever had a conversation where you realize, um, or you've ever heard someone speaking on a subject where you realize they're not really talking about uh, the subject at hand, and then at the end of their presentation, they realize, yeah. oops, I failed to address my subject, and they toss it in. Well, that's what the gospel afterthought. The gospel gets in there, but it's given a place of very low priority, and it's kind of tossed in as a footnote. Yeah, I, I, and you know, when I started fighting for the faith and we review evangelical sermons, we noted that the phenomenon, we call it the gospel nugget. And, I mean, you don't blink because it, you know, this is the gospel flying in at Mach 3. And uh, if you did, if you blinked, you would have missed it. And so I pointed out, and then, yeah, and then the gospel is never mentioned again. And uh, as, uh, you know, as, you know, we're coming up on 10 years of uh, fighting for the faith. Um, you know, now, I mean, the gospel as an afterthought doesn't even show up in much of evangelicals. They don't, they aren't even aware of the gospel. You know, so it's not even an afterthought. It's like, it's not even on their mind anymore. All right, so the gospel law sermon. So uh, what's 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 that, and what's wrong with a gospel law sermon? Because I mean, you got law and gospel. There they are. See? Yeah, they're they're there, and I'm not going to be a stickler for the order within a sermon at any point because I think you're right. What you said before, Chris. If someone's preaching the text, then law and gospel will be preached. It's not always going to be law section, gospel section. But I'm talking here about the. Um, the kind of sermon, and this I think is probably really, really popular with um, maybe liberal Lutherans. And for some reason, they'll begin with uh, everything that Christ has done for us. And then they'll go on to what kind of tease out the implications of it. And it's usually in terms of social justice. Yeah. Sad, sad to say. So you're going to get what sounds, if you just kind of walked by the church and the windows were open briefly and heard the message of the cross, you'd say, oh, good thing that church is preaching the gospel in there. But if you actually walked in, stuck around to the end of the sermon, what you're going to hear is it's going to end with all sorts of law. Um, you know, Billy Graham, God love him, was, was and a lot of these kind of bad preaching sermon sermons are, are related to one another. He could preach long gospel and then he'd turn right around and give you kind of the rest is up to you. You got to believe. Mm-hmm. You got to commit, come on down, that kind of thing. And this one is just that, except probably from a more liberal social justice bent. You walk in and then it's going to be feeding the poor, or it's going to be a sermon that is just, isn't so great that God has given us his unconditional grace. Now, Let's talk about the food pantry here at our congregation for a while. Yeah. That kind of thing. You know, it, it, funny phenomenon. Uh, you know, as I was researching years ago, the emergent church, and, you know, that was the first time I, I really had met Doug Paget, Tony Jones, and Nadia Bowles Weber. And uh, my first assumption would have been with those people that, they're, that they were totally, there was no law, no morals, or anything. But the thing that was, was really shocking to me was that they had exchanged God's law with a different law. And they were just as legalistic as any Nazarenes that I had ever run into. But you have to kind of get to understand their culture before you can see it. Um, and, uh, you know, one time after, you know, visiting an emergent conference and getting to know some people, some of them actually followed me on Twitter. And I, I you know, like literally the next Sunday, I posted a photograph of, 
our the, the church I was attending at the time, I called it our coffee bar. And I mean, it was like the <laughs> it wasn't a coffee bar at all. It was like one of those pop up tables with one of the, you know, the big stainless steel coffee thingies and uh, and some, you know, uh, some coffee supplies purchased at like Sam's Club. And, uh, you know, I, I just posted the photograph to kind of, you know, be funny and talk about how we had such a great coffee bar at our church. And clearly the photograph showed that it wasn't. But no sooner did I post that. No joke. I mean, I got pummeled on social media from these emergent types because th- there was white table sugar in, in in one of the dispensers there, and I was raked over the coals for somehow it buying into and participating in uh, evil colonialism against third world nations because of the type of sugar that we had. And it's like I'm thinking, what on earth just happened? I mean, I, this is it, it was the same kind of treatment. Like if you were a Nazarene and came to church with like you know tobacco on your breath or something, you would be raked over the coals for you know smelling like tobacco. It was the same kind of thing. And I realized. At that point, they were just as legalistic as any, you know, Nazarene evangelical, you know, you know, any of those groups, you know, the, you know, the, the, the political groups, that, you know, folks on the family and, and stuff like that. It's just that they had a completely different set of laws that they had invented. Absolutely. And, and it's I mean, man is kind of he man in his natural state, unregenerate man is a a natural born legalist but it also means he's naturally born a, a licentious at the same time because legalism and licentiousness are simply two expressions of one thing they both yeah. they they both have have a a stance toward god's law legalist says i know what it is i can keep it and and gosh darn it i will by my own reason strength and power and the licentious person looks at it and says i know what it says I can't keep in gosh, gosh darn it, I'm not going to uh, by my own will, strength, and power. So it's they're just two two reactions of the same person yeah. to to God's law. And look, it's funny what what people get all worked up about. You know, the Baptist might get worked up because uh, someone you know someone uh, drinks a beer, and I don't see a big difference between a Baptist getting worked up because someone drinks a beer and uh, a, a kind of liberal Lutheran get getting worked up because you didn't locally source your coffee for the coffee hour. You yeah. didn't, you know, you didn't go organic or go green with your church bulletin or something like that. Yeah, There's no, very little difference. Yeah, it's 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 legalism. It's just different. It's the two different man-made legal systems. So, all right. So now this is. I think this one might step on some toes, but I thought it was very fascinating. Uh, you, one of the things you said, uh, one of the bad preaching examples was the lost sacraments sermon. This is, I've heard many of these sermons and I, I, I want you to flesh this out a little bit here. What, what do you mean law sacraments? I mean, aren't, aren't the sacraments, the gospel delivered? So can't you just preach law and sacraments? Yeah. And a lot of, a lot, a lot of Lutheran preachers do. Uh, I really, and it's a temptation to do it because uh, with the rise of a new emphasis on the centrality of the sacraments, it was always there in the Reformation in about the last hundred years in Lutheranism, uh, especially in America, where the sacraments have, in a sense, kind of been rediscovered. And that's a good thing. With that has come the tendency for preachers, in order to kind of, they want to invite people to participate in the means of grace that Christ has given in baptism and absolution of the Lord's Supper. The temptation has been 
to let baptism, absolution, and the Lord's Supper substitute for the clear preaching of the cross. Mm-hmm. I have no problem with a pastor preaching on the sacraments and that when law and gospel have, have been proclaimed, vigorously inviting his people to remember their baptism, vigorously uh, uh, telling, reminding people that the absolution stands certain certain beyond any word that they will ever hear in their lives and and vigorously encouraging people to come and receive Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of their sins, life, and salvation. No problem with that whatsoever. But you don't get there by leapfrogging the cross. And what I've heard, and this comes from listening to my own preaching too, Chris, uh, at times you just get lazy about this, where the pastor clearly preaches a law, but then where you would expect to hear Jesus on the cross, that is, Jesus giving his life for you and for the life of the world, he preaches the sacraments instead. Mm-hmm. And he, none of the things he says is untrue. He may so, say something like, you are baptized. He may even say, Jesus has forgiven all your sins. You've been absolved this morning. Or Jesus is, feeds you with his body and blood. He may use those words, and those things are true. But And while, the God, while baptism is the gospel delivered, and the Lord's Supper is the gospel delivered, and absolution is the gospel delivered. Preaching about baptism, absolution, and the Lord's Supper doesn't necessarily deliver the gospel. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yep. To receive baptism is to be is to is to is to receive the gospel, and to receive absolution is to receive the gospel, and to receive the Lord's Supper is to receive the gospel in in, a, in another form. But to preach, you are baptized, doesn't mean doesn't necessarily deliver what it is the preacher thinks he's delivering. Um, he may be assuming too much. I can hear you are baptized, right? Mm-hmm. And I can do all the math in my head uh, because I'm a trained theologian and say, I know what he means to say. I know he means to say that Jesus died for me on the cross and that death has been delivered to me and and I've been crucified with Christ. But he better say that explicitly when he's preaching it. There's nothing wrong with with couching it in baptismal terms, but you better get to the cross. And I think what happens here is the preacher walks away thinking he's preached the gospel when he hasn't. And sometimes the people think they've heard the gospel when they haven't. And all I'm asking for here is specificity. Mm-hmm. I've said it before and I'll say it again. And I think it stands true. Unless Jesus dies in your sermon, the gospel didn't get preached. Mm-hmm. And Walther himself made it clear that the gospel has to predominate, but it's not predominating if you're leapfrogging over the cross. Yeah, the cross, I mean, you got to get to the cross. And I'm not talking about this isn't some sort of existential experience you're trying to produce in people. Yeah. This is the objective preaching, because I firmly believe, as Scripture tells us, that the objective preaching of Jesus' death, not just Jesus' whatever, Jesus' death, is what creates faith in both those who've never heard it and those who've heard it a thousand times. Yeah. It is a faith-creating thing. And sustaining. And, and, and sustaining thing. And so uh, to, assume, to, to assume the cross, even while you're preaching all other great things and the means by, which the cross, means by which the cross is delivered to us through the sacraments, just don't skip Jesus on the cross. Make sure Jesus is dead before you, for the sinner, um, before you go on to discuss those great means by which his death is delivered. Yeah. 
So, Todd, I mean, we're, we're not I – mean, we just barely scratched the surface of this tome that you have written. I'm surprised this, you know, you're, this is not a CPH book-length thing yet. I, I hope it becomes something like that because I think the article itself is quite helpful in ide- identifying many different ways in which sermons can kind of go off, off the rails um, in ways in which uh, we as Lutherans, we need to actually consider – um, you know, just because we are the great defenders of and proclaimers of uh, God's law and gospel doesn't mean that it's easy to do <laughs> this from the preaching task. In fact, sometimes uh, we must confess that uh, uh, we sometimes sit on our law gospel laurels and get a little bit lazy in our sermon prep. So, um, th- so how does somebody get a hold of this particular issue of the uh, issues, etc. Journal, and so that they can get this article and read it and consume it and and consider what it is that you have laid out for the body of Christ to consider here. Uh, there's and there's a lot more in there, as you say. It's pretty lengthy. Yep. Uh, <laughs> my articles tend to get too lengthy, uh, but all they need to do is go to the issues etc. website issuesetc.org, and there on any page of the website, they're going to see over on the right hand side. They might have to scroll down a little bit. Big red button that says subscribe. They'll be asked to submit their an email address mm-hmm. there, and then the issues etc. journal will be emailed to them. Uh, absolutely free of charge. Every single issue is absolutely free of charge. It's available there online. And the latest one not only con- contains uh, that, but it also we have a regular feature called the Wittenberg Trail feature where we invite pastors and theologians kind of tell their story about their path toward confessional Lutheranism. So they'll find all of that there absolutely free. Issuesetc.org. Issues ETC, subscribe, put your email address, subscribe to the Issues Etc. Journal, and then they'll email it to you completely free of charge. Todd, thank you for coming on Fighting for the Faith. It's been a long time. I think the last time I had you on, we talked about the uh, the playing the Pharisee card article, and uh, that was so many years ago, <laughs> I've lost track. That so, was uh, 10 years ago, probably. Yeah, probably. We, we need to uh, have you on a little more often than that. Uh, yeah, let's see if we can uh, yeah, bump up the frequency from every 10 years to a little uh, more, more frequently than that. But uh, great article, worth the read. Uh, again, issuesetc.org. Uh, Todd, thank you for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Well, and Chris, thank you very much. And I wanted to thank you before you let me go for the years and years that you have spent as a guest on Issues Etc. You have brought uh, so much to our listeners and really, truly become one of our listeners' favorite guests. And you have done it just uh, purely out of the out of the goodness of your heart, your desire to see God's Word clearly taught. Thank you very much for doing that. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.